Welcome to Making of a Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to study for his comprehensive exams. And today, to be honest, I am feeling very burnt out. I think it happens almost every Friday that I lose a lot of my enthusiasm, Um, but this Friday feels especially bad. It's not only that my mind is filled up with all the ideas that I've been shoving into it for the past week, but I also have been having to do a lot of bureaucracy and paperwork for the class that I'm grading for, which is how I get paid. And I I don't know, it's been making me kind of depressed. I've been grading all these papers that the students have handed in to me, and I just, I feel like their hearts aren't in it. It, They're just writing these little things to get a grade. I don't feel like anybody's actually thought about anything. I feel like everybody's just like slamming out five pages of bullshit so that I will give them something that will go on their transcript forever. It just feels kind of worthless, you know? And uh, this afternoon, I went to the lecture that uh, 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 of the class that I'm grading for, and like every lecture, I look around me and there's all these students around me, all these undergrads, and up front is the lecturer who's delivering a fine lecture on, on European history. But all around me, the students are kind of tuned out. You know, half of them are on cell phones, texting or looking up memes or talking to one another. Another half are sleeping, and then there's only a few people who seem to be actually engaged. And it's disappointing. I know that history can be boring. I mean, I know that. I I live with this stuff every day. And let me tell you, I get bored. And you wish that sometimes you could just jump through the pages and shake the shoulders of whatever eminent historian is writing a book and just go, be interesting. But I think that the stuff that we do is useful too. And it bums me out that we're not reaching students, or it seems like we're not reaching students. It makes all of this effort that I'm making every single day seem, you know, vain, seem impossible, seem just kind of dumb. Makes me wish that I were a management consultant so at least I could buy pretty things for my girlfriend. Anyway, perhaps another reason why I am loath to start this podcast is that my reading yesterday was on some really heady stuff that I still haven't gotten my head around. And uh, so today, the the podcast about that stuff I read yesterday is going to be a little bit half-baked. So one of the big problems with making sense of history in the 18th and 19th centuries is that everything seems to happen at once. We seem to cross some big line in the sand where things go from the way things were to the way things are now. And we usually label that under this big capital letters concept of modernity. But modernity is about as useful as any big gigantic concept, by which I mean it is more often confusing than explanatory. I mean, I remember an undergrad, I, I thought of myself as some, you know, knight gallant who was going to save modernity from the postmodernists. You know, I thought that I was going to discover the universal truths of Western civilization. And, um, you know, you can see how that turned out. But I, I think that it does actually help if we can rehabilitate modernity as a term that actually means something and means something concrete. But before we jump into that, let's just talk about all of those things that happen all at once. They will, for the most part, 
be familiar by now. Now, one of those things is urbanization. In some countries, a lot more people start to live in cities. And as you go from the 18th and 19th to 20th century, increasingly large numbers of people throughout the world live in cities rather than the countryside. Until today, the majority of people are urban dwellers. Another big process is democratization. Politics stops being explicitly about the operations of, you know, hereditary elites or oligarchs or, you know, whatever sort of political system you have, and increasingly becomes a system that is based on the idea of voting. That people, the people, some sort of group of the population, whether they're literate men who own property or everybody, can vote to determine people who will become their political representatives. And again, just like urbanization, this starts out first in only a few countries and then slowly spreads. Attached to this is the idea of nationalism. And nationalism is a little bit of a tricky concept that historians think that everybody knows. So if I am a little bit too quick in explaining it, tell me. So you can think of nationalism as people having a cultural and emotional connection to the state in which they live. Now, everybody, in the modern world at least, has to live in a state. You know, you have a government that get, gives you roads and, you know, makes sure that you have a passport and wages war and does all those governmenty things that a government does. But being in a nation is different. Being in a nation is being in a state that expects you in some way to have an emotional connection to it. The state determines, for instance, that in America we have universal public education. But it's the nation that makes the students rise up in their desks, put their hands across their hearts, and say the, 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 the Pledge of Allegiance. I think of it this way. If you have a birthday party for your country, you have nationalism. And again, just like with all of these other things, nationalism starts out in a few countries and then slowly spreads. And of course, you have the big one, the Industrial Revolution. We've talked about this so much that I don't need to tell you the blow by blow, but the long and short of it is that the Industrial Revolution meant that people produced a lot more stuff, and this changed the way that people worked and things were made. And, like everything else, it happened first in some places and then slowly spread. You also get an increase in education. People get more literate. People go to school more often. First boys and then girls start to learn how to read and then start to be educated in more complicated things, in part because they are having to work for wages in the market. And just like everything else, this education for wage labor starts first in some countries and then slowly spreads. You also get improvement in food, imperialism and global unevenness, and this whole big set of things that we end up calling modernity. So is modernity just the sum of all of these big changes? If we took out one and left the others, would it still be modernity? Or is there something else above and beyond these individual changes that makes the world modern? And 
I want to just point out that this is a really important question. Because to the extent to which we're happy or discontent with the modern world, we need to understand what makes the world modern if we want to change things, if we want to improve things, if we want to understand what might be coming. If we think of modernity as some sort of inevitable process that slowly takes over the world just by dint of its superiority, which is what people believed in the 50s, then we don't need to be terribly worried about problems like, say, massive immigration from countries that do not have uh, democratic traditions, or global warming, or uh, particular presidents who might have anti-democratic leanings. However, if we think of, of modernity as something more delicate, if we think of it as a very particular interaction between uh, legally enshrined individuals who are able to participate in democracy and the free market for wage labor, then if particular things in that constellation of elements gets disrupted, you no longer have modernity. This can be good or bad, of course, depending on your politics. Or there's a third option, that, that, that modernity is just some sort of dumb big word that ambitious 19th century social theorists gave to the world, and we don't really need it anymore. It doesn't describe anything, it never has described anything, and the quicker we can get rid of the idea that there's something fundamentally different between us and the people who came before us, the better. Now me... I think that modernity is real. I think that there is something drastically different between the way that somebody lives in 1600 and the way that somebody lives in 1800. And I think that that person living in 1800, or even better yet, 1900, is far closer to us today than they are to that person in 1600. I think that there is a way of living called modernity that is real and that is different. And I think that when you look at the people who live through this change, you can see it too. For me, I think that the big thing about what modernity is, is that it comes from living a free life in a city filled with strangers. So just think about what it means to live in a city. So, so when you're in a city, you're simultaneously completely anonymous because you walk around people who don't know you. You buy stuff from people who don't know you. You go to work sometimes in places that are so big that individuals don't know you. You simply fill a role. You're simply an agent of an organization. And also at the same time, you're completely visible. As you walk through these city streets, people can see you and you can see them and they can sum you up by the clothes that you wear, the neighborhood that you're in, the way that you walk, the, the, the accessories that you have. Similarly, when you go to work, you are incredibly visible. Not only can people see you at work, but you're producing all of these bureaucratic traces that allow you to be surveilled by the people who employ you and by the people who employ them. Similarly, you also probably 
probably produce all of these traces that are being watched by other kinds of organizations. The fact that you're working and the amount of money that you're making is being recorded by the U.S. Census and by the, the Secretary of the Interior's office and by the tax office. You are, you are a not just merely a cog in the machine, but you are a cog in the machine that is numbered and named and placed and never ever forgotten about. Think of it like the experience of being on online dating today. Before I met my current girlfriend, I was on online dating a lot. It was pretty fun, but there was this horrifying realization I had after I had been doing it for a couple of months. I remember swiping through all of the different people who lived in the Bay Area whose profile was you know, flashing by my phone and realizing that everybody kind of looked alike, that you could kind of fit people into one of like a dozen or two dozen different types. You know, this this being even, you know, as, as unique as each person could be. And I live in the Bay Area, so people can get really unique. And this realization wasn't that I could fit all of these strangers into boxes. The startling realization was, was that for the women who were looking at my picture, I also fit into a box. I was also one of a dozen or two dozen different types who was just immediately classifiable. I was probably overeducated, thin, you know, curly-haired dude with skinny jeans. If you like books and coffee and maybe a little bit of nervousness, go to that guy. And it was that shocking realization for all of my personal history, for all of what I take to be my independent, individualistic, like wonderful, innate self, I was just a type. And I think it's that tension between being seen, being invisible, being an individual, being able to fully express this individuality, being able to express this individuality so much that I could go today to a meetup of history podcasters if I were so inclined. And yet also knowing that this hard-won particular individuality, when seen from the, the, the perspective of the city, is not very individual at all. So I think that this experience of living in the city and having to trust these anonymous strangers and having to act in ways that let anonymous strangers trust you is one of the things that leads to the behaviors that become modern. So if you're modern, if you're a city dweller, you have to be flexible because you are going from situation to situation. You are mobile between place and place. You are modular, able to be lifted up from one context and put into another. And you need to be able to fit into these places and contexts and spaces relatively easily. And similarly, because you are so flexible, because you are so mobile, you become the sum of the different things that you do and the different places that you go to and the different people whose networks you are. And this summation of different social circles becomes in some ways a marker of your individuality. It picks you out from the crowd. Think of this in distinction from rural life. In rural life, you know, you're a member of a family who's a member of a church, who's a member of a nation, right? But there's no surprises there. Very rarely are you a member of something else. 
In the city, however, you're a member of a club, of a business, of a church, of a dissenting sect. You go to a particular restaurant. You have certain friends. You study French as a hobby. And the little geometry of all these intersecting interests picks you out amongst all different people. And this creation of independent groups in the mess of this city forces us to do something that most of my urban listeners will be very familiar about, creating community. Over and over and over again, when you hang out with people in Oakland or Berkeley or San Francisco, you will hear them complain that here we do not have a lot of community, that there's no place like an undergrad for us to go and hang out and just kind of be with a group of people. But I think that this is just an exaggerated symptom of what modern life is. In modern life, individuals have to work to make their communities. They have to be active to construct the societies that they see themselves as living in from the anonymous mess of the city. And furthermore, because people are constantly moving and changing in the city, these communities are far more evanescent than any communities were beforehand, and frankly, more evanescent than we are comfortable with as human beings. I mean, some of the greatest tragedies of my own life are the fact that some of my closest and dearest friends are no longer my closest and dearest friends, because I've lost touch with them, because I've moved city, because I do different things. Now, finally, you have to learn as you're moving through this anonymous jostling city, as you're moving from place to place, as you're creating communities out of nowhere, you have to learn to read the city. You have to learn to make sense of it. You have to learn to find its logic and grammar and figure out your place in it. And these are all things that become true in the 18th and 19th centuries for city dwellers. And all of these problems are things that 18th and 19th city dwell century city dwellers came up with solutions for. If you just take a backwards glance over the last couple podcasts, you can see these solutions. People make clubs so that they can make communities. People go to coffee houses as part of being flexible. People uh, read guidebooks so that they learn how to read their city. Uh, companies and businesses and, and government offices put signs all over the city so that literally the city becomes legible. People make maps of the city so that people can learn how to navigate it. People generate statistics about the city so that the mess of it all becomes in some way graspable by human hands. And it's these challenges that force us, for better or for worse, to be modern. Thanks very much for listening today to this kind of loosey-goosey episode of Making of a Historian. I hope you liked it. Uh, please thank Jonathan Lear for making the music and Duncan Barton for making the image. If you like the show, rate and review us on iTunes. Share us with your friends. Tell me that I'm doing something that's worthwhile for humanity uh, so I don't feel like I'm just talking constantly to a sea of undergrads who do nothing but check their Tinder or their Instagram every day. Ooh, I sound like a caricature of a grumpy academic. Anyway, uh, uh, thanks very much for listening, and I will be with you guys tomorrow, and hopefully far less grumpy and far less grumpy.